I'm going to be reading from John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that in your word we, we encounter you. And I thank you that you are with us this morning and you've already been speaking. And I pray, Holy Spirit, come now and show us more of Jesus, that we might trust him more and love him more and hope in him more. Amen. Amen. So some actions are so loaded with meaning and so provocative in their nature that they are just an unmistakable challenge to the status quo and a challenge to all of us. They grab your attention and they refuse to let you go on unaffected. Now, in the summertime, some of you would have watched Glastonbury and Stormzy became the first black solo artist to headline Glastonbury. And his set was pretty phenomenal. Um, I found it really deeply moving, actually. And it challenged lots of systems within our society that have both subtle and not so subtle racist elements to it. And Stormzy took to the stage in a stab-proof vest with a black and white Union flag um, painted onto it. And the vest was a comment on Britain's knife crime crisis and the racial inequality in the criminal justice system. The performance was provocative and loaded with meaning and highly creative and challenging the status quo. Some of you will remember also the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Does anyone remember that? Some of us? Yeah, good. Um, well, I wasn't, no, I was born at the time. I was just a young, I was just a young man. But that was a very decisive action, heaped with meaning that the world could not ignore. The fall of the Berlin Wall spoke about uniting a nation and pursuing the healing of entrenched tension between East and West in post-war Europe. Do you know, no one witnessing Jesus' protest in the temple, as read out so well by Becca just a few moments ago, could possibly have left that day unmoved or unaffected by what they had seen and heard. It was an action loaded with meaning and with challenge. And we're going to explore that together this morning, looking at what it tells us about God and how those actions impact us still today. But before we do, those of you who are familiar with the Gospels 
we'll note something unusual about John's account of Jesus' temple stunt. Okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke place the temple cleansing towards the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, they, make it the, they present it as the kind of action which galvanized the decision of the Jewish authorities to kill Jesus, whereas John puts it here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So what's going on there? Well, there are two possibilities. One suggestion is that Jesus actually staged two temple protests, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end, and some scholars have reached that opinion with good reason. But the second possibility, and the one which I think more likely for reasons you can ask me about later, is that there was only one temple cleansing and that John has deliberately placed it at this beginning uh, part of his gospel presentation for theological reasons. In week one of the series, we saw that John has been quite clear about his methods and his motives in writing the gospel. He has selected certain teachings that Jesus gave and particular actions that he performed, and he's arranged them in such a way to convince us of who Jesus is. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world, and John wants us to see that. So Jesus' actions in the temple are so paradigm-shifting that John has placed the scene here at the beginning to communicate to us that Jesus has come to redefine worship and to redefine the way to come to God, taking all that has been written in the scripture and interpreting it in reference to himself. Okay, so the theologian Gary Burge writes this. He says, there's no doubt that all four evangelists felt free to place sayings and stories from Jesus' life in settings that suited their literary purposes. Using uncompromised historical material, John is creating a theological portrait of Jesus, displaying the signs in the context of Judaism. Okay? And actually, we're quite familiar with this kind of thing. We're quite familiar with presenting details of a person's life like that. I've watched quite a few documentaries about Barack Obama. So Barack Obama, the first uh, black president of the United States. And his election was a huge moment, not just for the states, but for the Western world as a whole. Another paradigm shift in terms of civil rights and racial equality. And, and, And the documentaries that I've seen about Barack Obama often start off by showing us the scene of the day of his inauguration, the day that he became president. And then in light of that, they go back to show how he got there, interpreting all of his kind of life and the context in relation to the fact that he's going to be president. And so I think that's what John's doing here. So in light of all that, what is it about this temple scene that's so important? What we've got to ask ourselves is, what's going on here? Why is John putting it under the spotlight so much? What does it tell us about God and the mission of Jesus? And how does it relate to us here and now? Well, that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Up for it? It's going to be good. Um, But to start with, we need to understand a little bit about the temple. Okay, we need to track the story of the temple. And so that's what we're going to do to start off with. Now, in order to get an understanding about the temple and the significance of the temple, we need to understand that it embodied a theme that runs throughout the scripture. God's desire and God's commitment to dwell amongst his creation, to be with us. Now, this starts at the very beginning in Eden. God 
walked in the garden with mankind at the beginning. Eden is a picture of heaven and earth coming together. Eden was a temple, God dwelling with man, God's glory on display in providing for our good and our good found in enjoying God's glory. That's how it works. God's glory is expressed in doing us good and our good is found in enjoying God's glory in who he is. And so Eden was a temple, but this was disrupted at the fall. We looked at that at the beginning of this year in our series in Genesis. Human beings curved in on themselves, pulling away from God in search of a good outside of him. But of course, there is no good outside of him, for he is the very wellspring of all goodness. But still, God would not give up on his creation. So he binds himself in covenant promises to a family, the family of Abraham. And God determined to reveal his glory in doing them good so that through Abraham's family, all the families of the world would be blessed, that all of them would come to see something of the goodness of God. And so we see in Scripture various temple moments involving Abraham's family and his descendants, moments where heaven and earth come together, God's glorious presence manifest. So one example of this is in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, And here we meet Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Okay, but Jacob is is on the run from Esau, his brother, because Jacob has cheated Esau out of his inheritance. And Jacob is tired from being on the run, and so he's in the desert, and he lies down, and he uses a rock for his pillow. And then as he... As he goes off to sleep, he has an astonishing dream. He sees a staircase connecting heaven to earth and angels going up and down on the staircase. This is temple imagery. Later, priests would ascend the stairs on behalf of the people to go into the presence of God. This is temple imagery. And Jacob wakes up from his dream saying, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. And the Bible says that when he awoke, he was afraid, saying, how awesome is this place? Named it Bethel. Isn't that just the human condition? God is so near. We are so oblivious. When we become aware that he's been near all along, it's overwhelming. Because it exposes, in the presence of holy God, just our inwardly curved sinfulness. We've turned away from all that is truly good. Yet God's glory is displayed in doing us good. And so where Jacob finds himself in the presence of God, God speaks covenant promises to do him good. Bethel was a temple. It was a meeting place with God. And then later on in the story, after Jacob has been renamed Israel, and after his descendants have been liberated from slavery in Egypt... God instructs Moses to build a tent amongst the people, the tabernacle. Its purpose, according to Exodus 25.8, was to enable God to dwell amongst his people. Okay, so as the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are in the desert, God pitches his tent amongst them. And the glory of God is made visible over the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, in the form of a fiery cloud. And so everyone can look upon the very presence of God in the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. 
God pitching his tent, a place where heaven and earth meet, God drawing near, temple imagery. And the tabernacle is, of course, a precursor of the temple itself, the temple building. Having moved into the promised land and and established a kingdom for Israel, God put it into the heart of King David to build a house for the Lord in Jerusalem, the city of David. But it would be Solomon, David's son, who actually built that temple. And it was to be God's dwelling place amongst his people. The focal point of sacrifice and forgiveness and provision and thanksgiving. There you would go to meet with God. There, heaven and earth would kiss. And the temple, when it was consecrated, was filled with the thick cloud of the presence of God before which the priests could only fall down in awe and in wonder. God amongst us. Temple. The temple was about God's presence. It was about God's name. It was about communicating who he is. The temple was his provision for forgiveness. It was about promise, hope, identity, glory. The temple was where the great festivals such as the Passover were celebrated. And so Tim Mackey, who um, hosts a podcast called The Bible Project, and you should check that out, he summarizes the role of the temple like this. He says, the temple is to be a mini Eden. It's a symbolic space where you recall what you were made for. A space that says God is not letting go of our world. He has firmly entrenched his grip and will not let heaven and earth be divorced. Brings us back to earlier. It's not about our grip, it's about his. Okay? So the temple represented God to the world. It represented his commitment to the world. That's what the temple was about. That's the context into which Jesus' action at the temple need to be understood. So, so what had become of the temple in first century Jerusalem? Why was Jesus so enraged? Well, the temple, when Jesus approached it, had become not just a theological center of Jewish hope, but in first century Jerusalem, it was also the organizing center of Jewish life. It was a place of political, social, and economic power coexisting with the military might of Rome. Okay, so earlier on in Israel's history, the first temple had been destroyed and the second temple had been rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah. And, and then, 46 years in the making, by the time Jesus had arrived at the temple, Herod the Great had begun a project of kind of renovating and reconstructing the, temp- the second temple to make it even more imposing, more impressive, more iconic. So to a people oppressed and contained by their Roman occupiers, the temple of Jerusalem was the center of national pride and identity. Perhaps a little bit like Buckingham Palaces to us. Any royalists out there? You don't need to put your hand up to that question. That could be very divisive at a time of election. Um, But Buckingham Palace, well, if someone comes to visit Britain, then Buckingham Palace is probably going to be on their um, list of places to visit, okay? Because Buckingham Palace embodies something of British culture and history and pride. It's impressive in its own way, okay? And 
we know the temple in Jerusalem was impressive too. So in Mark chapter 13, the reaction of the disciples to seeing the temple is recorded. And they comment on how wonderful these stones are and how incredible and impressive the building is. They're awestruck by it. It's, a, it's an impressive building. Grand. But Jesus is not so impressed. John tells us that in the temple, Jesus found people who were selling oxen and, and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, this is important, okay? The, the Greek word for temple used here by John when commenting on all the buying and selling that was going on is the word hieron. Whereas the word for temple used a few lines later when Jesus is talking about his body is the word naos, hieron, naos. So why is that important? Well, naos refers to the most holy places of the temple, all that's contained within the building itself. Whereas hieron refers to the whole temple complex. So you just go back one slide. So the whole temple context is this. Whereas, so naos, hieron, okay? Now the reason why that's important is because the hieron, in referring to the wider temple context, also in particular referred to the outer court of the Gentiles. You see, the temple was organized in such a way that it had several different layers. The innermost parts were the most holy parts, yeah, where only the high priest could go. And as you went further out, the accessibility opened up wider and wider. And the Hieron referred to here is that whole temple complex, including the court of the Gentiles, which is the area where anyone could go to meet with God. Anyone desiring to draw near to God could do so in the court of the Gentiles. You need not be a descendant of Abraham to come and be with God there. But that was the place that had been turned into a market with the permission of the temple officials. And so the commentator Colin Cruz explains that the only place then where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come and pray in the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And this had been turned into a noisy market. But remember Israel, as inheritor of the promises given to Abraham, was chosen to be a blessing to the nations, to display the goodness of God to the nations. And the temple was supposed to embody that calling. And yet what Jesus found was not blessing of the nations, but exploiting the nations for the sake of personal economic gain. And so the outer court of the temple looked more like, it looked more Roman than it did Abrahamic. In Mark's account of the temple cleansing then, Jesus says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's incensed by it. And he's quoting in part there from Isaiah 56. Okay, listen, listen here to the words of the prophet Isaiah. God speaking through Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus enters the temple. And Isaiah says this, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God's heart and desire has always been to draw all the nations to himself. The temple was supposed to reflect that desire. The temple was supposed to represent God to all people, to be a place of meeting, a house of prayer, heaven and earth come together. But it had been turned into a marketplace. So that rather than embracing the nations, it was exploiting the nations. It was misrepresenting God to the nations. As if he were more interested in what he could get from them than in drawing them in to do them good. Because that's how his glory is displayed. So Jesus overturns the tables. Pigeons flying everywhere. Animals running everywhere. Coins flying everywhere. Chaos everywhere. Very deeply provocative. Jesus' actions there was about judgment on the temple. Judgment to those overseeing the temple. Jesus consumed with passion, with zeal for his father's house. Zeal for his father's reputation. Desperate for God to be made known as he really is. Holy God, gracious God. Can I, let me give you a very imperfect analogy. Suppose I went away for a few weeks and came back to my home. And suppose that like a big metal turnstile had been put up outside my home, like you get at a football ground. Okay, so that if any of the neighbors wanted to come in, they had to pay and get through some metal to get there. Okay, and just suppose some wanted to do that. So they got through the turnstile and they came into my home and rather than finding comfortable sofas, they found uncomfortable beanbags and no cake in the cupboard. Okay? And bits all over the floor. Now I've got a thing about floors. And Supposing there were no books on the shelves and no plants, but there was graffiti. And suppose in all of the windows there was the sign, beware of the dog. Yeah, if I came back to find that that was what my house was looking like, I'd be so upset. That's not who I am. That's not how I exist. That's not how I want to be known. That's not representing me. This is no comment on what my daughters might do to my house in my absence or anyone else for that matter. It's an imperfect analogy, but it shows something of Jesus' experience in walking into the temple that completely misrepresented God to the people. He had to protest, and Jesus' protest was disruptive. And politically dangerous. I mean, you can just imagine from the perspective of the disciples how disorientating the scene must have been. I mean, one minute they're looking at all these impressive stones, and the next minute they're caught up in all this hubbub. You know, pigeons and coins, and Jesus at the center of it all. So Cruz says that Jesus' disciples must have watched his actions with fear and amazement. Fear because the temple officials would not let this affront to their authority go unchallenged, and amazement because... Jesus acted so decisively with apparently no concern for the consequences. Zeal for your house will consume me. 
This is a quote from Psalm 69, which the disciples remembered. This temple was Jesus' father's house. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will say, I and the father are one. He'll say, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus is God with us. He is God, the son, one with the father, passionate to make him truly known. And so at Jesus' arrival to the temple, the very presence of God was arriving at the temple, to the house of God. And that was what was prophesied by the prophet Malachi. Okay, Malachi chapter 3 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. In Jesus, the Lord of Israel had come to his temple. Heaven coming to earth. God amongst us. And he comes with judgment. Judgment for the lack of integrity. Judgment for the worship that was all style and no substance. Judgment for putting self-interest above the reputation of God. Judgment for misrepresenting God to the nations. Judgment on the temple. And yet, even his fierce judgment will be for the sake of those who he's come to judge. Like a refiner, Malachi says. A refiner of gold and silver, committed to doing away with everything that muddies and threatens and damages in order to bring about purity and beauty and integrity, just as a refiner would look and look and look at the metal and the silver until his image could be seen in it and everything that muddies that was taken away. Jesus' judgment would not consume the hypocritical temple officials, but Jesus himself would be consumed. Zeal for your house will consume me. On the cross, Jesus would himself be consumed in order to do away with the sin that so spoils humanity, the religious and the irreligious, in order to restore the image of God in us. And after three days, he would rise to become himself the global meeting place with God, where all the nations can come. Give us a sign to prove your authority, they ask. Jesus says, destroy this temple, this naos, this holy place, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was talking about his body. What the temple pointed to, Jesus fulfilled. He is God pitching his tent amongst us. The word became flesh. In Jesus, heaven and earth come together. Fully God, fully man. Come to pull us up from within our own humanity to be with God. He is the meeting place with God. He is the way to the Father. The way opened up by his self-giving sacrifice. And so Richard Hayes, the Methodist um, scholar, says, Jesus now takes over the temple's function as the place of mediation between God and human beings. And as T.F. Torrance puts it, 
what he mediates is who he is. He is God the Son. He gives us himself. And so in having him, we have access to God, not keeping us at arm's length, but embracing us as sons and daughters. Jesus makes a way far greater than a stone temple ever could. At the hour of his crucifixion, as Jesus's, the temple of Jesus' body was destroyed by the sin of the world, as he took the sin of the world to the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, the temple curtain was torn in two so that all might come to the most holy place and know God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 1 Peter 3.18 Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has flung wide open the doors for all the nations to come into the presence of God. And that includes you. You need not travel anywhere. You need not go to Bethel to be in the presence of God. He's as close as faith. And that faith is engendered and created by his word of promise. And what is his word? Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Only after his death and resurrection would the disciples understand the significance of what Jesus had done in his death and resurrection and what he had done at the temple. And the mind-blowing thing is that as the disciples came to see, post-Jesus' resurrection, the reality of what he'd done at the temple, they came to understand themselves to be temples of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of you. Paul writes to the Corinthian believers and says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. This is a deeply personal application. If you are one who trusts Jesus and embraces him as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God lives within you. That's not a feeling. That's a reality. You are not your own. That's one of the things that baptism speaks over us. We are united to Christ, joined to him, belonging now to him, filled with the Spirit, your body a temple. And so as you go about your daily activity at school or at uni or in recovery or at the sports field or at the shops, you carry the very presence of God with you. It's a moment of worship, all of it. God is with you. And you represent God to those around you. Huge joy, great responsibility. And so it makes me ask myself, what tables need to be overturned in my life? Are there ways in which I'm misrepresenting God? Are there areas where the presence of God is exchanged for the equivalent of a marketplace? How about you? What tables need to be overturned? The Lord is jealous for you to do you good. And your good is found in knowing more of his glory in your life, his presence. That's a very personal application, but the gospel is not individualistic. You see, we are now joined together. 
The Bible places a far greater emphasis on us together being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He says, But you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, of God by the Spirit. When we come together, the very presence of God is here with us. And you don't need to do anything for that to be true. We just need to be together. It's by virtue of our union with Christ. We are united to Christ. The Spirit lives within us. When we come together, God is here. And so when we come together, every time we gather, we should expect to know the glory of God. What will that look like? More and more revelation of who Jesus is, who is the radiance of the Father's glory. And more and more revelation of the beauty of his crucifixion and resurrection, which is the hour of his glory. And more and more understanding of our welcome before God because of his work on our behalf. Oh, that our gathered worship would not be like an outer court, like a marketplace. May it never be more style than substance. May it not be about slick presentations or entertainment or self-promotion. We gather to know God. Okay. But also we gather to represent God to the world. And we go from here to represent God to the world. The temple is to make God known to the nations. That means at least two things for us. It means the door is open to everyone no matter how different to us they are. Let us not put, Oasis Church, any stumbling block in people's way for coming to know Jesus as their Lord and their God. And it also means speaking truth to power. It means whenever we encounter injustice and oppression and prejudice and exploitation, we speak against those things. Those things have no place in the world that our Lord has made. And so we speak up on behalf of the voiceless, the homeless, the unborn, the incapacitated, the trafficked, the disenfranchised. It means we, we speak truth at times to power, like Stormzy. Because all of this temple activity is empowered by the living presence of God and his unshakable promises to us in Christ. Through Jesus, the transforming power and beauty of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot be overcome. And one day, one day, because of Jesus, heaven and earth will fully come together. And as Isaiah puts it, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That's temple. And that temple is grounded in the person of Jesus. Why don't we stand up? Just like to pray for us. We're gathered here in the name of Jesus, and so we are in the presence of God, in the glory of God to be made known to us. Perhaps, perhaps there's someone here, or more than one, who up until now would not embrace 
Jesus as Lord and Savior. But as you've heard about him, you want him. And the Lord says, he is for you. Have him, even now. Know him calling you to himself. Know him having done everything necessary to take away your sin and bring you into the very presence of God. Know yourself even now called into sonship, daughtership. But maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you just want more of God and you need him. He's here for you. And you don't need to go somewhere and you don't need to do something because he's here now, close to you. And Jesus' promise to you is, surely I am with you always. He is the meeting place with God. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've done for us in the person of Jesus. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and for leaving your Spirit until the work on earth is done. And I thank you for, for providing all the means for our good in the display of your glory, which is your self-giving love. And I pray, O oh God, would you cause us to be a people who are not two-faced, who do not simply look out for our own interests, May we be those, Lord, who really treasure your presence, who treasure who you are, who love you with all that's within us. And would you make us more like you as a result, Lord, loving others sacrificially. God, may our doors be wide open for all to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And Lord, would you empower us to speak for justice and righteousness wherever we go, for the sake of the good of the world and the glory of your name. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.